Good morning, good morning. I hope you are well. Okay, that was rough. Um, <laughs> I really was expecting just a smidge more. Um, <laughs> but that's okay, you know, we're, it's a little early. We're here together. We're family. Um, good morning. Glory. <laughs> okay, let's sing again. Ben, come on back, bro. We got to go again. Um, but no, we are in First John chapter two, verses one through six, and plugging through the book of First John, we have about eight or nine more weeks in the book itself, and we find ourselves today in chapter two, verses one through six. And so if you don't have a Bible, please, there should be one near you that you could just snag and look at. We're just going to try to explain God's Word and try to apply it to the heart. So uh, you'll need it, and that will help you know kind of where we're headed today. If you don't own a Bible, we have one out in the coffee room out there. Uh, Some giveaways that we would love for you to take as our gift to you. And so now as we look at 1 John chapter 2, I want to read it, and then I'm going to pray. And then we will go at it together. So, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-6 through 6 says this. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him, if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word... In Him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Let me pray. Father, I thank You. I thank You for Your grace to us. And I just pray. I pray that right now You would... Just shepherd our hearts. I ask that you would encourage us with the Scriptures. And I pray that you would draw near right now. Father, I pray that you would encourage us with how great you are and how much you care for our needs. And I just ask that as we spend this time together now, that Your Word would pierce our hearts and that we would be more like You because of our time together. I love You and I thank You. And we ask now for Your help to change us and to give us affection for You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's one thing I need. Bible. Because we use the Bible here. Okay. How many know what a trust fall is? Trust falls. Trust falls are this wonderful, unique kind of team building exercise 
in which the purpose is that a team would grow to trust one another, to have confidence in one another as a team. What happens is a person stands with their back to the team and then at an agreed upon time, the person, eyes closed, not looking back, falls into the arms of their team. Some call it stupid. Some call it a great team building exercise. Well, as you think about a trust fall, I want to show you a few. Here's one trust fall where trust is broken by under communication. Close your eyes and just fall down, okay? And Warren's going to catch you. Close your eyes. Okay, it's called the trust fall. Okay, trust fall. Ready? Set. Go. Bummer. Okay. Here is one where trust or confidence is not broken because of under-communication but where confidence is not instilled because of weakness. Ready? Ready? Ready. Falling. Now, for a trust fall to really build trust, you need to have communication. You need to have a sense of strength and confidence in the strength of the team. And the more you know the character of the people catching you, the more confident you are. Maybe like this bride here. She looks like she doesn't have a care in the world. But to throw herself into the arms of eight strapping young lads that she probably has known prior to this moment gives you a sense of, okay, I can then more freely throw myself backwards. How is confidence built up in a trust fall? It's when the ones who are catching you, you are confident in their strengths, and the one who is catching you, you're confident in their character. So... The aim of John here in 1 John is to build our confidence. To build our confidence in our own salvation. Not because we are strong enough to secure ourselves, but because His character and strength are unflappable and infallible. So our confidence is then built in the fact that God is strong and His character has no flaws. And therefore, we can throw ourselves back into His strong and loving arms. John is doing something extremely similar to a trust fall here. And he does it, he does it by reminding us of our Savior more than ourselves. So as John wants believers to have confidence in their salvation... That they are God's children and that they can walk in faith. John wants to highlight Jesus. He builds confidence on the back of the Savior, not primarily on the confidence of our back. On our ability and our efforts. And so he does it in four ways. Four ways. The first phrases, I've got, there's four points and they have two phrases. The first part of the phrase is much more significant and primary than the second part. But here's where we're headed today. Number one, Jesus, our advocate. 
Therefore, we resist sin. Jesus, our propitiation. Therefore, we are rescued. Jesus, our commander. Therefore, we obey. And Jesus, our lover. Therefore, we walk in confidence. This sermon is a beautiful gift to us. And it's, it's almost like a title song. Back in the day, I loved Michael Jackson. Still do. I like his songs. Felt like he was massively gifted. So when you got the Thriller album, I had it. Yep, vinyl. I had it. When you get the Thriller album, there was not only Thriller the album, but there was Thriller the what? The song, right? As one of his greatest hits. Same with Bad, right? Okay, some of you are looking at me like you don't know this. Okay, stay with me. Same with Bad. It was not only an album, it was also a great hit song. Okay, here, what we have is confidence in love. That's what we've titled this entire sermon series in 1 John. But ultimately, this is kind of the title song. It is where the main themes of the book are meant to deepen our confidence in God's love for us. And therefore, in how we love one another. So this is the title song, so to speak, for, for John. And so as we're in 1 John... Chapter 2, we want to dive into what he says at the beginning. And the first point is, Jesus, our advocate, therefore we resist sin. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He's pointing us backwards now to the first chapter. Therefore, I, he's using the first person, he's growing with a sense of a little more intimate, almost like a a father and a son. I've got a word for you right now. And as he says that, he says, my little children, the sense of spiritual affection, spiritual fatherhood, listen to my instruction. I have been writing these things to you that you may not sin. What has he been writing? He's been writing that Jesus is God. Jesus is the God-man who came and gave His life for us. That we might have fellowship with Him. And when sinners have fellowship with God, their joy gets full. I'm writing that to you, church, so that you may not sin. Because you realize that by growing nearer to the Lord, your joy gets fuller. Therefore, you want to distance yourself from sin. I'm telling you that so that you may not sin. He also says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. I'm writing that to you, church, so that you would want to draw near to your God, to walk in the light as He is in the light. Because when you do that, you actually have a deeper fellowship with God and with one another. And in the moment of your obedience, the Spirit of God is actually cleansing you in that moment, making you more like Jesus, giving you more hope, more security, more joy, more love. So I'm writing this to you so that you may not sin. You see what he's doing? This is how you are stirred to stiffen your resistance to sin. To stiffen up. You do it by knowing your God. Knowing where your joy is deeply rooted. That's in Him. That's what we've been looking at for the past couple weeks. And so he says, I'm writing this to you so that you would be more resilient 
you would be more aggressive against sin and in your pursuit of Christ. I'm writing this to you so that you would live in forgiveness and run away from the things that are mastering you and debilitating you. So if you're battling with sin and you want to stiffen your resistance, as one commentator put it, then just bathe yourself in 1 John chapter 1. Knowing that God is light. He is holy. In Him there is no darkness at all. And He is fully for us as His people. Now, he's writing this that we might not sin. There were some, as we talked about last week, some within the church that were living lives of license and sin, breaking all kinds of commandments and having a heart that placed everything before God, and yet still saying, I'm in fellowship with God. Maybe they were deeply rooted in tradition and said, hey, I've been pretty religious for a while, and therefore I'm secure no matter how I live. People do that today. Some were just saying, I don't have sin. I don't have sin. And what does that mean? It means that basically you have to lessen what sin means. To just, I haven't broken this rule like my neighbor did. I might have broken like I told a little white lie, but I didn't break it as bad as they did. And so you lessen sin. Or, the other category is you don't want to be called a sinner. Because you don't know how to deal with guilt and shame. You know that if you were a sinner, you'd be crushed. That's what was happening in this church. You see it in verse 8. If we say we have no sin at present, we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us. In verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and the Word is not in us. If you say you didn't sin in the past, if you say you haven't sinned now, you just don't understand your heart. You're either lessening sin or you really don't know how to deal with guilt and shame. And usually the person that is so crushed to be called a sinner is the one that finds themselves constantly blaming others for their faults. We all do it, right? I mean, it's the sin of Adam and Eve. But you know what it's like when you've done wrong and you're caught, the face kind of gets red, the heart kind of falls, but it just feels better in the moment to shirk it by talking about what somebody else did wrong. Rather than saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Would you forgive me? How in the world do you deal with crushing guilt and crushing shame? John anticipates your question. And he says this. Chapter 2, verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. You don't have to be crushed by it. Because there was one who in the past by His death and in the present, sitting at the right hand of the Father, is your advocate. He's standing as a friend at your defense. And He is articulating that He has died for you and that His blood is enough for you. Do you battle with self-condemnation? Have you battled with it this week? Just rehearsing your faults? 
rehearsing what you have done wrong? The Bible says we have an advocate. An advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And He stands to obliterate accusations and to say, My death is enough. Now when the Bible talks about Jesus, it talks about Jesus as a mediator. There is God and He should pour out His wrath upon us. And Jesus, the God-man, He came and He died in our stead so that His blood would wash away our sins. And we would be able to sing a beautiful song, but also, Jesus, thank You. You know, we just sung that. And it's like, that's right and that's not enough. You know, it's just like, Thank you, but good night. What other words could I throw out there to you, O oh God, that would just articulate the destiny I should have apart from your intervention and what I have been given by your amazing grace? And the text says that Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's our mediator. He is the one that stands between us and God so that we don't get His wrath, that we can go straight to the Father through Jesus Christ. Jesus is also called in Hebrews 8.1 the high priest. He's the high priest. The priest was the one who stood between the people and God to get a word from God for the people and to go to God on behalf of the people. This is our great Savior. He goes to God on behalf of the people and He goes to us on behalf of God the Father. Now, this word advocate, it's the only used by John. It's used here and it's used four other times in the Gospel of John. And when it's used, it's used to describe the Holy Spirit in every place except here. Where once again, we believe in one God, three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God. This is another prime example that he has no problem calling the Holy Spirit the paraclete, the one who comes alongside to stand in your defense, and calling Jesus the paraclete, the one who comes alongside and stands in your defense. Because they're one. And yet, they're two different persons. But when the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is a helper. He comes alongside to help you. And Jesus now is this helper. What is He helping you from? Because what kind of accusations come when you are battling with self-condemnation? Condemnation. What does that look like? Well, it's the accusation from the devil. Right? The devil. When He tells you you're not good enough. You'll never measure up. You'll always be in sin. You're worthless. He tries to convince you that your life is about other things and those things constantly are slipping through. Your life is about your job. Your life is about your image. Your life is about what you can secure on this earth in finances. Whatever it is, the devil is accusing you over and over that either you don't measure up to the world or you don't measure up to God's standards. And you know what? The truth is, we don't. So what do we do with it? A beautiful passage that gives you kind of a snapshot of what Jesus the Advocate, Jesus the one who stands in your defense might look like. It's Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. And it reads as follows. Zechariah chapter 3. Then He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at His right hand to accuse Him. 
Satan standing there to accuse. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebukes you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. That means He's chosen you as a people. You stand underneath the banner of His goodness. So He rebukes the devil. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord clothed with filthy garments. This is you and I. We are sinners clothed in the filthiness of our sin. And yet, the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. How could he do that? Because the Lord was standing there as an advocate, saying the devil is a liar and I have done it all. And so the angel of the Lord says, why don't you give him some new clothes? And he said to him, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments or clothing. It was the clothing of the priests. That's what sinners get. The holiest clothing there was out there. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on the head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with the garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you see this? Jesus Christ, He stands there. You are guilty in ragged clothing. And He says, I died in your stead. Therefore, although the accusations are true, the debt has been paid, you are now a full saint, a full child, one who is fully in the family. Jesus' righteousness is now your righteousness. You are His. And you don't have to work your way in it. It's what has been purchased for you. Have you felt like a failure? Have you said just a stupid word this week? Wishing you could take it back. Have you felt like a failure with your roommates? With a dear friend? With somebody in your family? Did you make a mistake as a daddy? Or as a husband or wife? What about at work? Were you tempted to deceit in order that people would think well of you? What are you going to do with that? Are you going to let the cancer grow by denying that it really was an issue? Are you going to do what 1 John 1.9 says? Why don't you come to Him? And if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you of all of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And when you deserve condemnation, it is not your lot. Because Jesus is an advocate. He stands there before the Father, having done it all, that you might be forgiven. So where does our confidence come from? Where does our confidence come so that we can fall into the arms of our Savior? It doesn't come from our perfection. It doesn't come from what we can do for God. It comes in what He has done for us. And what He is doing now. He is an advocate for you. He's a friend. He's standing there for you. So out of the rubble of your sin comes the life of confidence that is born only by Jesus Christ.
He has done enough. He has done it all. By His death in their place. Their sin, my sin, your sin upon His shoulders. And now His righteousness on us and in us. So we stand as sinners, yet we stand forgiven. Now, how is that possible? Because Jesus is not only our advocate, but our propitiation. I know that word is not normal, or at least doesn't feel very common. But it's in the Bible, and we need to know what we're reading, right? It's not going to be very helpful if you memorize propitiation, but have no clue what it means. And so we dive into point number two when it says, Jesus is not only our advocate, but Jesus is our propitiation. He's our propitiation, therefore we are rescued. And He's our advocate, therefore we resist sin. Now, as propitiation, what does it mean? It means that His sacrifice, His death, bears the wrath that God should justly pour out upon sin, and now His wrath towards us has been turned into favor towards us. His wrath towards us is now His favor towards us. And why is this important here? It's important because you can imagine the dissenters. The people who are saying, I can live like I want to live, and I still have fellowship with God. I can live how I want to live, and I can still have fellowship with God. What are they missing? They're missing the fact that their sin should incur His wrath. They miss it. But those who are followers don't miss it. They know their sin should incur wrath. And so when we sin, how do we not become crushed underneath the wrath that should be ours. And he says, because of grace, because of grace, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. If we sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and it is him who is our propitiation. He is the one that stood in our stead so that any sinner who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved, forgiven, set free to walk in a new life with Christ. And now this, these statements right here, I'm writing these things to you so you don't sin, but if you do sin, there's an advocate who is your propitiation. This is meant to cover the banner of what's moving forward here in the text. Because the text goes on to say in verse 3, or verse 4, I know Him. Whoever says I know Him but doesn't keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. When I read that, I think, well, I broke a commandment this week. Right? You begin to ask the question of degree, don't you? How many commandments do I break before I'm a liar and the truth isn't in me? When people read the book of 1 John, they either are crushed by their poor performance for God, or they diminish sin and they believe that you can become perfect in the here and now. 
And this text doesn't allow that to happen. These verses, this verses, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, they kind of cover the entire book so that you can begin to understand passages that say, whoever says I know him and doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Or 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, when we get there, it says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. That should be a massive crisis for everyone in the room. He goes on to say, because God's seed abides in him. And if God abides in you, then you can't keep on sinning because you've been born of God. Every one of you this week have sinned. And so have I. If you don't get chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, you will be crushed by the rest of the book. Because you won't understand it in context. The Bible's articulating, I'm saying this so you won't sin, but if you believe or do sin, Jesus is your advocate. He stands in your defense. He has been your propitiation. He took the wrath that you deserve so that now you are His child. You are secure and confident in Him. And when you're in Him, you live a life of love. He's addressing the dissenter who says, I can live any way I want. I can intentionally make a practice of sinning and still be called a child. That's garbage. It's garbage. It's a lie. Some, maybe in this room, are intentionally making a practice of sin with no remorse, no regret, no hatred, no fight, and yet still saying, I'm a child of God. You're a liar. And the truth is not in you. That's what the Bible says. That is why He states things the way He states. But first things must be first. Our confidence rests in Jesus. And when we know Him as our advocate, as our propitiation, as our commander, and the One who loves us more than anyone could ever love us, then because He abides in us, we have different affections, we have different desires, we have different pursuits. But it doesn't mean we are sinless. This is why it's important. This is why it breeds hope. Because if you don't get this, you will be crushed by the poorness of your performance. And so if this, is, if this is such amazing, good, glorious news that sinners can be made right before God, then is it just for the church that John is talking to? No. This hope is to reach to the ends of the earth because there are people dying dying and going to hell. And there are people living, as we read in Ephesians last week, they are leaning and living in the shadow of death. They do not know the hope that is there in Christ. They do not know what it is that if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they can be rescued from their sins. And they would have Jesus as their advocate. And the wrath that God should pour out upon them has been stayed by the death of Jesus Christ. That hope must go out beyond just you. It must go to the city and it must go to the ends of the earth because John is wanting to be really clear. This is not just for you, church at Ephesus. This is not just for you, western Turkey. Because he is a propitiation not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole 
world. For the whole world. It's going to the ends of the earth. Now this is not a declaration that everyone will be saved. Everyone in the whole world is going to be saved. It is that Jesus' death is sufficient for everyone. So that when the Bible says anyone, everyone, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved. Anyone. And so what do we do? We go, we proclaim the good news of Jesus. But it's also not just a valid offer. Jesus has actually purchased something. He purchased something in His death. It says in Revelation 5 that by His blood He purchased a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is why our workers, when we send them out all over the globe and they go out, they go based upon that sense of confidence that God has died and His death is effective and has purchased some from every nation, tribe, and tongue. His Gospel will work. It will change people's lives. That's why we proclaim the Gospel in the here and now. In this city. Because His Gospel is effective. He does have some that still need to believe. And so we proclaim. And this is why we're about racial harmony here at this church. Because it's not just about one little group kind of being a holy huddle and being content there. It's about sharing the hope to the whole world. And as we talked about last week, we must be passionate about loving our neighbor in this city, which means we must be passionate about trying to bridge cultural gaps between whites and blacks and Hispanics and Asians that have flooded our city. We must be passionate about that, but we also must be about reaching the unreached. Those who have never heard. Because Jesus promises that He will return again, Matthew 24:14, when the Gospel of the kingdom has been proclaimed to every single ethnic group and there is a representative from every single ethnic group, then the end will come. And so we go. So we go. I was reading the other day in the newspaper, and the uh, not newspaper, that doesn't happen anymore, I guess, uh, online. Um, and as I was reading online, there was a statistic. One of our members sent this to me, and so thank you. Um, and... Statistic that Wake County just gave birth to its one millionth person. Now, this isn't the metropolitan area, for we've been over a million for quite a while, but the statistics in there are there are 62 people added to Raleigh every single day. 31 move in from another state... 22 are from childbirth, which I was at Duke Hospital this week with one of our members who was giving birth. On Thursday alone, they had 50 babies born at Duke Hospital. One hospital. But not only are there 31 moving in from other states, not only are there 22 on average per day births, but there are also... Nine that come from foreign countries. That means in a calendar year of almost 3,300 individuals 
who had never stepped foot in America or who had never come here as a resident are now residents here. This is why we must be about racial harmony. God is bringing the nations here. God is bringing people here. And the good news that Jesus is our advocate and our propitiation cannot be kept in. This is why it's just a beautiful opportunity that Travis was talking about with SIT, that you can get involved in international students. It doesn't take much. Just one life is all we're aiming for. Just invest yourself in one life. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's a life of a student that's here in our city. Maybe it's a life of one of your neighbors. Whatever it is, invest your life in just one. Can you imagine if 250, maybe 300 people invested their lives in just one? What it might look like over the years to see the hope of Jesus multiplied in this city and beyond. Jesus is our advocate. And He is our propitiation. And that good news is not just for you and I, but it's to extend to the whole world. But also now, as we dive into the end, we see that in verses 3 and 4, we see Jesus not only as advocate, not only as propitiation, but we see Him as commander. He is our commander and therefore we obey. We resist sin. We celebrate being rescued. But we obey because Jesus is our commander. Do you know that you always have a commander in your life? And I'm not just talking about you might always have a boss or there might be some relationship of authority in some way, shape, or form. But you are always mastered, being told what to do by something. Your heart is always telling you what to do. Go after this addiction. Spend time doing this. What's your commander? Jesus Christ says, I am the most stable. I am the most secure. I am the most joy-satisfying commander you will have. So turn away from false masters and lean into Me. This is where the trust fall comes. He says, I'm a good commander. Do you know why He wants to be known as a commander? And this is where I get it, right? He says, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. He's a commander. Why is He a commander? Why not just a free-for-all? No laws! Because commandments bring security. Why do you think God tells parents to instruct their children and God tells parents to discipline their children? And why do you think He tells children to obey their parents? Because commands are a place of security. They're a place of safety. They're meant to tell you what is permissible and what is not, what is a safe place and what is not. Commands are meant to be a gift. They're meant to be a gift. But why? Many times, many times, parents view it as unloving to give commands. I talked to my parents who both have just retired from 40 some odd years of teaching. And I asked them, What's, what changed? 
over the 40 years as you were a teacher in the public school system? Well, I mean, a lot. My daddy, he started teaching with, you know, the paddle. He was able to paddle the mess out of people. And now, you know, you can't even look at him crossly, you know. He was like, discipline, parental support, and the lack of understanding of authority at all. Our culture is allowing kids to be the authority. Kids are foolish. That's what they are. Parents are supposed to be wiser than their children. And therefore, they're supposed to give instruction. And children are meant to obey. You cannot say, children, obey your parents without a command. That means parents must give commands. And children must obey. And if they don't obey, there should be a consistent consequence. That's something else my parents said. Consistency has been thrown out the window. Consistency is what gives security. Children don't know how to reign there and rule their own lives. It's meant to find delight in submitting to an authority. We have been created to submit to authority. And as we submitted as children to our parents, it's meant to be. It's not always because family lives and home lives are broken. I get it. But it's meant to be a picture of growing into obeying and submitting to our God. Dear friends, we cannot allow this sense of indifference to commands and live in a culture where commands are seen as evil. Jesus says in in the Word, in the book of Hebrews, it is said that if you aren't disciplined for breaking commands, you will be treated as an illegitimate child. Parents, if we aren't disciplining our kids in love, not in anger and just outburst, if we're not disciplining them, giving them consequences to actions, we're treating them as illegitimate children. I'm thankful God doesn't treat us that way. He says, here's what's good for you. You have to understand, His commands are filled with more love than you've ever experienced in your life. And He says, here's what's good for you. And if you try to jump over the line of command and you run into something else, it will damage you. Jesus is our commander. And He says in verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. You know what happened when I read that first? What happened was this. I thought, I don't keep His commandments. I don't keep His commandments, so am I really? Do I really know Him? Why didn't I think God stirred in my heart to read the Word the other day and He spoke to me? Why didn't I think, yeah, I I spent time praying for this person and I took this difficult situation to God. I sought to love because I wanted to please the Lord. Why didn't I think that? Because for many of us, we are bent towards pessimism. We are bent towards looking only at the negative we do, and we are refusing to live in the freedom. Do you know why John has written this? He wants you to be set free. He wants you to be able to know that, hey, be encouraged. You're not perfect, but you've got an advocate who died in your place, and you're actually living for Him. Be confident. 
But when you're always focusing in on your sin and all the bad you do, you miss. There's grace in your life. There's grace in your life. He's wanting them to know if you keep His commandments, not perfectly, no one's perfect. But if you're fighting to love Him and to live for Him, you can know that you know Him. He's come into your life. He's changed you. If you've been convicted of sin and you've taken steps in obedience, if you're loving others, if your desires have been changed, celebrate it! Stop being Mr. and Mrs. Half-Empty person. Like me. I'm fighting with you, friends. It's to the one who is a rebel at the core who says, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want Him to be known. But I don't want Him to be treasured. Or I don't, I'm not going to treasure Him. Whatever it is, it's to the rebel at the core who says, yet I'm still in fellowship with God and I'm okay. He says, verse 4, whoever says I know Him but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His Word and in Him truly the love of God is perfected. These commandments, these commandments are not only do this, it's not only like don't commit adultery and don't lie and don't murder, it's also commandments of the heart, right? Love God, love your neighbor, be humble, consider others better than yourself. How are you going to do that? Because Jesus is your advocate. He's your advocate. He's for you. His Holy Spirit lives inside of you as a helper to give you what you need to walk in faith. So then, if you know Jesus as advocate, propitiation, and commander, and you desire to submit to Him and follow in His ways, then you also get to know Him intimately as lover. Now, I know when you say lover, especially in our culture, it can become sexual in its connotations. Know this, Jesus, our lover, it means that He loves us more than any other relationship we could ever imagine and more than any feeling we could have ever felt. He is love. He's the definition of it. And therefore we can walk in confidence. And it says, whoever keeps His Word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. As you walk in Him, you experience His love. You are reminded of how He is for you. You are reminded of His love for you. And then your love for Him is proven. That's why we said confidence in love. You're confident because you know He loves you. And you're confident because you walk in love towards others. That helps you know that you're a believer. Not your perfection. His perfection. Your journey in faith. To please Him and to live for Him. And so, it says in verse 6, If the love of God is at work in your life, whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. How did He walk? He walked in humility. He walked in sacrifice. He walked in pursuit. He walked in love. So what do we do? We can sacrifice because we've been sacrificed for. We can pursue because we have been pursued. And you can love even when you don't feel like loving. Because you are loved. The greatest way forward is to fall backwards into the arms of our secure Savior 
and do what I call active reclination. It's reclining in His arms, but it's actively fighting for faith in Him. He uses both images. The confident falling back in trusting and the walking. But ultimately, our confidence rests in that He loves us. He gave His Son for us. And then our confidence will rest that we, are be, we will be made into loving people because He dwells within us. Let's pray. Father, I love You and I thank You for loving us. And I just ask so much that You would give confidence, breathe assurance to Your people. And may their assurance not be in their performance, I pray. Oh God, deliver from that evil sense of subversiveness of the Gospel. That it is ultimately my performance where my confidence should rest. Oh God, may our confidence rest in You and Your ability to change the human heart. Please save, I I pray. Please rescue in this room. Please deliver from pessimism. Help us to see the evidences of grace that You have poured out in our lives. For those who are not believers in the room, help them to stand in awe that this could be true for them. Sinners, yet set free and made children and empowered to live lives of love. God, please, I ask, give us eyes to see You as our advocate so that we resist sin. Give us eyes to see You as our propitiation. A propitiation so that what we do is we celebrate our rescue. Give us eyes to see You as commander so we obey You. And give us eyes to see You as the One who loves us more than we could ever imagine so we could walk in confidence as we love others. I pray this for the glory of Your name, in Christ's name, Amen.